Okay, let's pray for the word today. Father, we ask, we ask for your blessing upon our congregation as we look into your word. May these ancient words penned 2,000 years ago, Lord, breathe life to us. I pray specifically, Lord, for the people in our congregation, even the ones that aren't here today, that might be viewing this or listening to it online later, that the teaching would be helpful. The Lord, you would help them to take up their God-given tasks to parent well, and we pray for the children in our congregation that they would really take heed to what your word says and apply the word of God to them as children. Help me, Lord, to make things clear. We pray the Holy Spirit would attend your word with power. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. And we're going to call this the duty of children part one, because there is going to be a part two. And when it comes to the duty of parents, there's probably going to be at least two parts. So this, will, I would imagine this will be a minimum of uh, four messages on the Christian family. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. The Duke of Windsor once quipped, The thing that impresses me most about America is the way parents obey their children. He wasn't far off, was he? <laughs> Pastor Legan Duncan was once telling a story in one of his sermons about a woman who was having fits with her 14-year-old daughter because her 14-year-old daughter was attending another church. She wasn't going to church with her family, and it wasn't a church that the mother approved of. And so this woman came to Pastor Duncan, and she said, what should I do about this situation? And he says, well, let me get this right. Your daughter's 14, right? Yeah. She doesn't have her driver's license yet, right? No. Well, then how is she getting to this other church? Well, I mean, I'm taking her, the mother said. And Pastor Duncan says, well, I've got an idea for you. This is what you do. Don't take her. <laughs> and the woman says to him, can I do that? And he says, of course you can do that. <laughs> and we have the silly notion today in our strange psychobabble American world that the children dictate to the parents what they can and cannot do, and we just go right along with it. The Bible doesn't say parents obey your children. It says children obey your parents. One of the worst expressions of human depravity, I believe, in our day and age is the widespread disobedience and disrespect of children to their parents. It's rampant. It's everywhere you look. I mean, just turn on your television and watch a sitcom. And within minutes, you're going to find children disobeying their parents as if that's normal. And it's approved of. It's just everyday life. Turn on a cartoon. And in the cartoons, the children are the heroes and the stars. They're the ones able to solve every problem. And the parents are looked at as bumbling idiots that don't know what they're, what they're doing. It just breeds this widespread widespread disrespect on the part of children towards their parents. Or if that isn't, isn't enough, go down to your local grocery store or mall. 
and watch children telling their, or watch parents telling their children no to some request and see what happens. You're going to see defiance. You're going to see rebellion. And in some cases, you're going to see hatred on the faces of those children towards their parents. One authority has written this. In the United States, at least 8 million serious assaults are made each year by children on their parents. In recent years, a number of children have been convicted of murdering or hiring the killing of their parents, usually for no greater reason than resentment of parental control or discipline. Did you hear that? 8 million assaults of children on their parents. These are serious assaults. This is the direction America is heading. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Here you find him listing disobedience to parents among all these other sins that will characterize people in the last days as being evil, as depraved. Go over to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. Now in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now what truth are men suppressing that God's pouring out His wrath because of? Well, it tells us it's the truth that God exists. God has made evident to every man, He's put it in their hearts, that He is real, that He exists, and that He's alive. His, His attributes are clearly seen, He says, through nature. Just look around you and you can tell there's a God. But people don't like that truth because they, they know if they admit there is a God, they're going to be accountable to that God on Judgment Day, and so they suppress it. They push it down trying to make it as though it weren't real at all. They don't give God thanks. They don't worship Him. Instead, they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. So what does God do? How does God respond to this suppressing the truth? Verse 24, 26, and 28 say that He gave them over. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, and let's notice this through verse 32. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, 
They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Notice a couple of things. Right smack dab in the middle of all of these sins that God gave these people over to it. This is characterizing the downward spiral of depravity, getting worse and worse. Smack dab in the middle of all these sins is the sin of disobedience to parents. And he lists that with murderers and haters of God. In other words, this, the sin of being disobedient to parents is a serious evil in the sight of God. Society may not treat it that way. God does. It is something if... Children, listen to me now. Listen up. If you are being disobedient to your parents, God will hold you accountable on Judgment Day for that. You are guilty before God of a great wicked sin, according to the Bible. You need to know that so that you can repent of it. The second thing you need to know is that those who practice disobedience to parents, according to Paul, are worthy of death. Worthy of death. Now, where would Paul get that idea? Sounds like a very strange idea in our day and age, doesn't it? That someone who disobeys their parents is worthy of death. The Old Testament scripture tells us that on the books, on the law books, was the death penalty for a child who would not obey his parents. Exodus 21, verse 15. Let me show you that. Exodus 21, verse 15. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. So someone who hits, physically assaults his parents will surely, surely be put to death. What about uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18? Here we go. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother... And when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. You hear that? How many children will we still have alive today if that was on the law books? <laughs> Few, right? There's, there's, I mean, disobedience and rebellion to parents is just widespread throughout America today. We're on this downward spiral. God is giving us over because His wrath is being poured out upon America. We are heading down further and further into our depravity and disobedience to parents is just one modern expression of that. So we're going to do a little mini-series on the family. We're going to start with children because that's where the Apostle Paul starts in Ephesians 6. And once we have noticed what he says to children, then we're going to notice what he says to parents. And I pray that it will be a help to us in our church. Now, I want to make two observations, and these are rather more like implications that surface from the text today. They surface from verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There are two implications from that verse that we need to see. The first one is this. Paul assumed that children would worship with their parents. 
Now, I don't know if you see how I'm getting that from the text, so let me try to be really clear here. Who is Paul speaking to in verse 1? Church. Yes, in particular in verse 1, who is he speaking to? Children. Children. This is in the vocative case. That means it's the language of direct address. Look back at chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Who is he talking to? Wives. He's speaking directly to them. And he tells them what they're supposed to do in verses 22 to 24. Then verse 25. Husbands, love your own wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There again he's addressing husbands. And he goes on for eight or nine verses telling the husbands what they're supposed to do. And then he comes in verse 1 of chapter 6. Children. Paul is talking directly to the kids. So Paul believed that when this letter was read to the church that had gathered, and the, the letter to the Ephesians was read to that congregation, he expected that the children would be present to hear the words directed to them. Do you see that? Just raise your hand if you do. I want to make sure you get this. If, this isn't a command for children to be present in the worship service, but it's just, it's, Paul expected it. He assumed that it would happen. So the churches that Paul planted in the New Testament, the children were present with everybody else in the congregation, and they were hearing the preaching of the word. They were hearing letters from the apostles being read. They were present when they sang and they worshiped and they prayed. It was all part of New Testament church life. And you know what? That's the way it has been for thousands of years. It's only in about the last 150 years that we've come to the, the place where we segregate the children off in their own classes according to their own ages to do their own thing. That's fairly recent in the history of God's people assembling together. Let me show you some texts from the Old Testament about how the children of Israel gathered. Okay? Let's go back to the book of Joshua. Chapter 8. In Joshua chapter 8, the people are celebrating the fact that they've had this great military victory over the city of Ai. God has given them victory. So they all gather together. And in chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, we're told who was there when they celebrated. Joshua 8, 34. Then afterward, he read all the words of the law. Let's stop right there for a minute. He read all the words of the law. So what is that? What does that include? At the very least, that includes the entire book of Deuteronomy, 32 chapters long. Joshua is reading 32 chapters. Now, I would call that a long worship service. We think kids can't stay in an hour and a half or two hour worship service because it's just way too long to sit still. Well, as we're going to notice in just a minute, the kids are present when the whole book of Deuteronomy and perhaps portions of Leviticus, Exodus, and Numbers are being read. Then it says, The blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Notice that little phrase, the little ones. In Hebrew, it means those who trip the step. We would call them toddlers today. Even the little guys 
Those just starting out, the two and three-year-olds, they had gathered together for this worship celebration, acknowledging God and giving Him praise for the victory at Ai. Okay, go with me over to Second Chronicles, chapter 20. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, three enemy armies are coming up against Israel. King Jehoshaphat is afraid. He's worried. He doesn't know what he's going to do when, when the armies come up against him. And so he calls the entire nation to fast and pray. I want you to notice who is present here when the whole nation is fasting and praying. Look at verse 13 of 2 Chronicles 20. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Now this is not children watching a video, or watching a puppet show, or doing flannel graphs. This is children participating with their parents in a prayer meeting, and they're fasting. Okay? So we have this idea that children today just couldn't be able to, to, to sit still for anything other than entertainment. Well, if we just read our Bible, we'll find out that in generations gone by, they did participate with their families, with their parents, in spiritual services of worship. So this is the pattern that we have with Israel. Everybody came together to worship the Lord. This is the pattern we have in the early church, in the, in the churches that Paul planted. Everybody came together to hear the preaching of the Word, including the children. About 150 years ago, we started to change that. And now we don't, we think it's just normal. We think it's always been going on that way. But did you know Sunday school started in the 1780s over in England? And when Sunday school started, they were a real school. They started them because these children were going off to the factories for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, and they had no chance to have an education. They worked Saturdays as well, Monday through Saturday. And so the only day off they had was Sunday. So the church started these Sunday schools to educate these factory working children. Usually they were boys. And they gave them as part of their education, a religious education. So they taught them to read, but they taught them to read out of the Bible. But they also taught them math, um, other forms, geography, science, and things like that as well. Eventually... Eventually, public schools became the norm, government-run schools. And so at that time, because the children were being taught their education Monday through Friday during the day, Sunday schools became entirely religious instruction. But that didn't even take place until the 1800s. We haven't had Sunday schools from the Apostle Paul on. This is a new innovation in the church. And today we've got Children's Church, we've got Awana's, We've got Sunday school. We've got eggs segregated. I mean, if you go to a mega church, you've got a class for every age under the sun. All I'm trying to say to you is this is not the pattern we have in Scripture. This is something that we've come up with on our own. And I think probably God had a better idea than we did. Now you say, I know, I know there's objections in your mind to all of this. We're going to talk about some of those objections. But before we get to the objections, I want to tell you about the blessings of doing it this way. The blessings. Number one, what is the divinely ordained means of conversion that God has given the church? Do you know? How do most people get saved according to the Bible? Hearing the preaching of the Word of God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Parents, if you're Christians, I know that the greatest desire of your heart for your children is for their salvation, is for their conversion. The Apostle Paul says, God is well pleased through someone preaching the word, preaching the gospel to save those who believe. This is the normal, ordinary means of conversion. Of course, people can be saved other ways. God can use all kinds of things. But the ordinary, normal way for people to come to saving faith is by hearing the gospel preached to them. So my question to you parents is, why would we want to shuffle our children off to some other class where they're going to be entertained? Of course, they will be taught, and we do put effort into teaching them. I'm not denying that at all. But we think we have to entertain our children, or else we can never get their attention. So we, we remove them from the place where they can hear the gospel preached, which is the means most often under God for their conversion. Why would we do that? I, I would just submit to you, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. One of the benefits is that God can use the preaching of the gospel in children's lives to save them. Okay, a second benefit. Children learn by example as well as by hearing. They learn by seeing just as much as they do by hearing what's happening. And what do children see when they're with their parents in a worship service? Well, in our church, they're going to watch their parents singing to the Lord, perhaps raising their hands. They're going to watch their parents share a praise report or a prayer request, or maybe their testimony of what happened that week. They're going to watch their parents maybe share a word of Scripture for the congregation. They're going to watch them listening to the Word intently and maybe taking notes. And they're going to see, hey, my mom and my dad take this stuff really seriously. It's really important to mom and dad. There must be something to this. So just watching the example of their parents could have a greater impact than perhaps anything else. So those are some of the benefits. Now, what are the objections? Number one, well, my kids are not going to understand. They're too young to really understand what's going on. I don't think even all of the adults understand everything that's going on. Do you? I think there are some things that, that the adults are not getting as well. And in addition to that, do we not do things at first because we think, well, I just don't understand everything that's happening here, so I'm not going to do it. Let, let's take the first time you watched a baseball game on TV. Did you understand everything that announcer was talking about? He's talking about a ground rule double. He's talking about the ERA of that pitcher, and you're going, ERA, what, equal rights amendment? What is he talking about? <laughs> Slugging percentage. He's talking about there's a man on first and second, two outs, and uh, it's a three and two count. The runners are going to be going. Going where? Well, why are they going to be going? You know, and you don't know, have a clue as to what this guy's talking about. Do you say, man, I'm never going to watch a baseball game again for the rest of my life because I just don't understand anything here. No, you, you get as much as you can the first day. And gradually you pick up more and more as you go along, don't you? That's exactly the same way our children are. They don't get a whole lot when they first are introduced to a worship service, but they get enough to where they begin to build on that gradually over time. And 
After a period of time, they're getting a lot out of the worship service, and they're starting to understand the gospel clearly, which is what they need to understand. The second objection is, well, they just can't sit still. They'll never be able to sit still for an hour and a half, two hours, while the church gathers. And you know what? That might be true. That, that definitely might be true in the beginning. But that's because perhaps we haven't spent the time we need to training our children and telling them that this is something that's just expected of them. We expect you to come and we expect you to participate with us because this is something that we take very, very seriously in our family. It's very high on the priority list. And I could suggest that parents during the week could begin to train their families so that when they come to church on Sundays, the children are getting ready for it. Now, what do you think would be the very best area of life to start training our children in? I would suggest to you it's family worship at home. I hope all the families here are having family worship together. I, I, I hope that... <laughs> <laughs> they say, well, what's family worship? Family worship is when the family comes together and they worship. They might sing a hymn or they might sing a song. Um, dad or mom reads a passage of Scripture. They ask the children questions about that passage of Scripture. They discuss it together and they have prayer. And the children learn to pray by mimicking mom and dad. And the mom and dad are modeling for them how to pray, how to worship the Lord, how to engage with God through the Word. Uh, usually the best time for this is right after your evening meal. Bring your Bible, set it on the table. When all the family is done eating, open up your Bible and, and read a passage together and discuss it. This is, this is training ground 101 for your families. If they can learn to be respectful and well-behaved during family worship, then they're prepared and ready to come into the larger gathering of the church and hear the word. So, I would say here, the goal of parents here at the bridge should be that sometime between the ages of five and seven, we can begin introducing our children into the life of the church. I know that in the cases of young children, two and three, it's too soon. Uh, they're not going to be able to understand, and they're going to be more of a distraction than then they are going to be benefited. But I think with proper training around five, six, seven years old, we can start to bring the children in and they can start to benefit from their gathering with us. So I'd like to just plant that as a seed in your mind. Okay, my goal. Now I know we're in process in this and it may not happen instantly, but this is something let's begin to shoot for and let's begin to work towards as a goal. So, number one, Paul assumed that children would be worshipped with their parents in the services of the church. Another implication that comes out of this, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, is that Paul is writing to children who are regenerate. These are Christian children. You say, well, Brian, why do you think that he assumes that these children are Christians? The implication I'm seeing here is that Paul assumed that children could be saved. Let me give you three reasons why I believe Paul expected that many of the children he's writing to were saved. Number one, <clears throat> who's he writing to when he addresses his letter to the Ephesians? Ephesians 1.1, to the saints who are at Ephesus 
and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now what's a saint? It's not somebody in the Catholic Church that you pray to. <laughs> in the Bible, in the Bible, a saint is a Christian. It's any person who's saved. Uh, literally, it's a holy one. Someone who has been justified by grace through faith. So any Christian is a saint. That's who Paul's writing to. So number one, from the context of the book as a whole, we learn that he's writing to Christians. Secondly, let's look at the immediate context. And this is really important. Tune in now, because I'm going to give you an analysis of what Paul is doing in the last half of this book, chapters 4 through 6. The first three chapters are doctrine. The last three chapters are application. Okay? Right smack dab in the middle of the section on application, he gives these words in chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now that's a very important text. This is a command, present tense, ongoing imperative. Be continually filled with the Spirit. And then notice from verse 18 on, he begins to describe what that will look like if you are filled with the Spirit. Verse 19 is going to look like you speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It'll look like you singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. It will look like you always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And it will look like you being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Those things are the outflow of the Spirit-filled life. Worship, praise, giving of thanks, and submitting yourselves to one another. Now, verse 21, he says, and being... It's actually a participle. And being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In verse 22 through chapter 6 verse 9, he expands on that idea of being subject to one another. And he shows you what that looks like. In the case of wives, it looks like this. Verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Then he turns to the children and says, well, how does it look like for children to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ? Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. That's what it looks like for a spirit-filled child to be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. And then how does that look like in the case of slaves? Well, look at verse 5. <clears throat> slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. So he takes this principle of being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, and he looks at the marriage relationship, and then the parent-child relationship, and then the slave-master relationship, and he shows how it works itself out, the spirit-filled life in each of those relationships, and he always addresses the one who is to be submissive first. He addresses the wife before the husband, the child before the parent, and the slave before the master. And he tells them how they are to be submissive to one another in the fear of Christ. So when we come to chapter 6, verse 1, and he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. We have to go back to chapter 5, verse 18, because he's telling spirit-filled children how they are to live out their lives. Be filled with the Spirit. How? 
Obey your mom and dad and honor your mom and dad. That's how you live out the spirit-filled life child. So the Apostle Paul is addressing children, not every single one, but in generality, those children who are saved, and he's telling them, this is how you live out the spirit-filled life. You obey mom and dad. You respect mom and dad. And you honor mom and dad. There's a third reason I believe he's talking about saved children. And that's that, this little phrase in verse 6. Or chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents. What? In the Lord. Now a lot of people say, oh, okay, that means if my parent is in the Lord, I have to obey them. But if my parent's not a Christian, I don't have to obey them. That's not what Paul's talking about. <laughs> He's not talking about if your parents are in the Lord, you must obey them. He's saying you must obey them in the Lord. Now what does that mean? Well, it's basically the same, the same meaning that he attaches to wives and slaves. Let's notice that. To the wives. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. What does that mean? Obey your husbands as if you would be obeying the Lord. In other words, obey your husbands out of your obedience to the Lord Jesus. Because you love Jesus and you want to obey Him, submit to your husband. Okay, what does he say to slaves in chapter 6 verse 5? Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. The very same motivation which is given to wives is also given to slaves. Obey your masters as if you would be obeying Christ. So when he comes here to children in chapter 6, verse 1, and he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, he's saying the same thing. Obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. Obey your parents because of your relationship to your Lord. Obey your parents because this is how you obey the Lord. Do you see the point? He's assuming that these children are Christian children and they're capable of being filled with the Holy Spirit and this is the way they live out their spirit-filled life. Now, that is not an excuse for a child who's not converted to disobey their parents. God still commands the child, whether he's converted or not, to obey his parents and honor the parents. He's simply addressing spirit-filled children to show them how, if they would like to express the life of Jesus that is within them, this is how you do it. Your relationship to mom and dad, number one, and how you live out that life. So Paul assumed that children could be saved. Now, there are three applications that flow out of that one implication. <laughs> Let's look at all three of them. The first application is this. We must beware of believing our children don't need to be saved. We need to beware of believing our children don't need to be saved. I wonder if there's anybody here who thinks, well, our children are just so young, it doesn't matter if they were to die now, they'd all go to heaven because they don't need to be saved. They're still under the age of accountability. That mysterious age of accountability that we think has got to be in the Bible somewhere, but no one's ever been able to show anybody where it's at. Are you guys all believers in the age of accountability? That if you have a child, before he reaches that age and he dies, he goes to heaven. I would just like to know where in the Bible that idea comes from. It's not in the Bible. 
We've made this idea up because we like to think that children are somehow innocent until they reach a magical age and then they become accountable to God. What does the Bible teach clearly about children? Okay, put your Bible thinking hats on. What does it clearly teach about children? Ephesians 2.3 We are all by nature children of what? Wrath. Now what does it mean by nature? By birth. Every soul born into this world is under the wrath of God. Okay, let's look at another scripture that would help us here. How about Psalm 58? Psalm 58, verse 3. This scripture says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. What does it mean that somebody is estranged from somebody else? Separated. Who are the wicked estranged from? From God. They're separated from God from when? This says from the womb. The moment of conception. That child is separated from God. According to Psalm 58.3. These who speak lies go astray from birth. Not some age of accountability. They go astray from the moment they're born. Even while they're in their mother's womb, they're estranged from God, it says. Look at Psalm 51, verse 5. Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now this isn't saying that David's mother was sinning when she conceived David. This is saying that David was conceived as a sinner. Do you see the difference? When David was conceived in the womb, he was brought forth as a sinner. He was in sin when his mother conceived him. You say, how in the world could a little baby, a little tiny baby in the womb of its mother, be a sinner? It hasn't had a chance to do anything wrong yet. Do you, do you know the answer to that? <laughs> Adam's guilt and Adam's nature have been transferred to that little child. In fact, moms and dads, you passed your sin nature on to your children. So we have to look at ourselves in this whole role. We have a, a, a role of culpability, don't we? I mean, without even trying, we've passed on our own sinful nature to these children. So this is what we know clearly. Now, and this is a big issue. Let, let's just briefly address it. So what happens to a child between the moment of conception? Um, and if that child were to die or abort, that child is aborted or it's, it dies in infancy or, or as a young child, what happens to it? Does it go to heaven or hell? You know, and it depends who you talk to on this issue. Everyone's got their opinion. Um, my answer is, I don't know. I don't think God has clearly revealed what happens. So what does we know in the Bible. Can I, yeah, go ahead. Is there a reference in the Bible to any of that? Though? So not. I don't think there's a specific answer to that question. I don't think there's a specific, clear answer to that question. There are things that people try to put together, like when David's baby dies. David says he won't come to me, but I'll go to him. And they try to say, well, that means that all babies go to heaven. Or when J Jesus called the children to him. 
Remember that? And he says, let the little children come to me, for as such is the kingdom of heaven. Neither one of those are clear uh, doctrinal statements of what happens to a child. Now, what if God told us that all small children or all aborted children go directly to heaven, but if they live their lives out, there's a good chance they'll go to hell? What would we be tempted to do? Kill them all, <laughs> wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be better for that child to have a short life but end up in glory forever than to, to grow up and end up in hell for all eternity? We would be tempted to abort all of our children or to kill them at a young age. Now, but what if God had revealed to us that all little children go straight to hell? That would overcome us with so much grief that we couldn't handle it. So I think God has wisely just not told us. And we can trust that the Lord of all the earth will do right in the end. And until we get to heaven, I just, I just tell people I don't know. That's a question I, I'll, I'll find out eventually. But I don't know the answer to that. I do know that all elect children, as the Westminster Confession says, dying in infancy are saved and have eternal life. Now, though every child dying in infancy might be elect, or there might be a portion of those children. That's up to the Lord. So we have to beware of believing that children don't need to be saved. I have a, a real good friend. He lives back in Pennsylvania. He was a fellow elder with me when I pastored a church in Milpitas. And they had a, he and his wife had a little girl, baby. And he was getting all kinds of cards and flowers and stuff. People were wishing them well on their new little baby. And one of the cards said, Congratulations on the arrival of your little new angel. And he turns to me and says, You know, they should have written, Congratulations on the arrival of your new little sinner. <laughs> and he was absolutely right. I mean, one thing, one thing about Howard is he was a very biblically-minded guy. And that's exactly what happened. He, <laughs> a little sinner had arrived. Now, does anyone here doubt that when a child is first born, he's a sinner? I mean, think about those little babies when they arrive. They are utterly self-consumed, aren't they? Don't, isn't that true? I mean, they don't care about you. They don't care about their brothers and sisters. They don't care the fact that you are exhausted. If they're hungry, they want their bottle now. If, if, they, if they're wet, they want to be changed now, and they're going to scream and cry until that happens. And as soon as they learn to talk, they start lying. Now, tell me, how did they learn how to do that? Did you teach them? Did you say, little Billy, come here, I want to teach you how you can lie. This is what you do. No, of course not. You, you tried to always be truthful in front of your children. And you tried to only allow other people who would be a good influence in the life of your child. So where did that little child learn how to lie? The Bible says he goes away, he goes astray from the womb speaking lies. He is born with a nature that knows how to lie. It's a sinful nature. Listen to this. This, this is the Minnesota Crimes Commission report that they came up with in 1926. This is interesting. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, 
his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these, and he seized with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. This is not a church coming up with a doctrinal statement. That's the Minnesota Crime Commission coming up with a report that they gave to the governor of the state in 1926. We need to beware of thinking that our children are fine, that they don't need to be converted because they're young. Folks, your kids need to be converted. They're sinners. Okay. The second application. We need to beware of not evangelizing our children. Now, this may not be so much of a temptation among you, but in some circles it is because in some churches... They believe that the children are converted unless they prove they're not. So they simply sort of accept them into the church family, believe, just assuming that they're converted, unless later on in life they prove that they're not. I believe that that's flip-flopped. I believe that we should assume our children are unconverted until or unless they start bringing forth the fruits, the evidences of grace in their life. So... Instead of waiting till the child's 18 and grows up and then get serious about evangelizing them, I think that we ought to be serious about evangelizing children from the moment they're born. We start, should start teaching them the gospel and preaching to them the gospel. Number three application. We must beware of using unbiblical decisionistic methods to evangelize our children. We must beware of using unbiblical decisionistic methods to evangelize our children. Now, do you know what I mean by decisionistic? This is rampant today in American evangelical churches. Mom and dad say, little Billy, would you like to go to heaven with mom and dad? You don't want to go to hell, do you? Wouldn't you like to go to heaven with brother and sister and mom and dad? Oh, yeah, mommy, I would want to go to heaven. Well, then just pray this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins and take me to heaven. Amen. And then mommy and daddy are taught to tell their little Billy that he's saved and that he should never doubt whether he's saved for the rest of his life. And do you know what that does to little children? <laughs> they grow up being deceived, thinking that they're Christians, where they're not more, any more of a Christian than the man on the moon is a Christian. 99% of those children that go through these decisionistic uh, methodologies saying the sinner's prayer turn out to be unregenerate when they grow up. As soon as they turn 18 or move out of the house, what do they do? Not only do they leave mom and dad, they leave Jesus, they leave the church, and they rush into a life of sin, of immorality, of fleshliness, of debauchery. Were they converted? The Bible says in 1 John 3, 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. Because God's seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. So if your child can leave Jesus and the church and morality for 10, 15, 20 years, he's not, he's not saved. 
I had somebody call me because they heard our program on the radio saying that they're addicted to sex. They're addicted to prostitutes. And I said, well, how long has that been going on? He said, for about 25 years. And he said, but I'm a Christian, and I go to church every Sunday. And I said, sir, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're not a Christian. You've been deceived. If you were a Christian, you wouldn't be uh, sleeping with prostitutes for 25 years. You would hate that. You would repent of that. God would sanctify you. He wouldn't allow you to go on doing that for 25 years, so you need to repent and become a Christian. And our children grow up because of this decisionistic mentality. And we even have people having altar calls for children, putting candy bars on the front row, saying, children, if you'll come down and accept Jesus into your heart as your Savior, you can have a candy bar and you can go to heaven too. This is just rotten to the core. Rotten to the core. And it produces false converts, and it produces children that grow up thinking they're going to heaven when they might be on death row in some prison cell, but they made a, a decision and said a sinner's prayer someday. Where do we find this stuff in the Bible, folks? Have you ever found this sinner's prayer that we're supposed to pray and then magically once we say it, we're on our way to heaven? Conversion, <laughs> conversion involves the dramatic transformation of the inner nature of a person where they begin to hate sin and love righteousness and children... If you've never experienced this inner transformation of your heart, where you've gone through a great change, you've been born again, you love God, and you want to please God, you're still in your sins, and you're still unsaved, and you're still unconverted. So we need to beware of these unbiblical, decisionistic methods of evangelizing our children. You say, well, Brian, should we do nothing then? No! No, we should teach our children the gospel over and over and over. We should model for them what a true Christian is and how he lives by our life, our lifestyle. We should pray for our children every day, throughout the day, all, all, during all kinds of periods of time, whether you're driving in the car or when you're tucking them into bed at night or over the dinner table. Spiritual matters should be uh, easy for us to converse about as families. So no, we evangelize our children, but we do not hastily assume that once our child says anything favorable toward about God or Christ or say says some kind of a prayer that they have been converted. What do we do instead? We wait to see the genuine fruits of conversion in their life. Genuine fruits. Now that looks different than, than a child saying, yes, I want to go to heaven to be with mommy. And, and even, um, even other ways, I mean, children are anxious and eager to please their parents many times. And so they'll be compliant with mom and dad. That alone is not a, an evident, a genuine fruit of conversion. What you want to see is a changed heart. A child that, that hates sin, is uncomfortable with sin, a child that truly loves Jesus and loves the Word, that is concerned about lost souls, that has a love for the Bible. These are the, the genuine fruits of conversion. And just because a child is small doesn't mean he's, he's not going to experience the same things that an adult will experience when they're converted. It'll just be on a different level. But the same kinds of things will start flowing from his life. Why? Because God's life is in that child now. God's life is planted within his soul. And so the fruit of that life is going to start coming forth.
So those are the three applications that, that flow out of this implication that Paul assumed children could be saved. Now, as we conclude, I just want to speak to the kids for a minute. So kids, put down your tablets and look up here. Kids, you need to be converted. Do you know that? You need to be. The Bible says that all men, you and me and everyone in this world, come into this world as a sinner. And if we die in this condition, we will stand before God and face His judgment. We must be saved from our sins. And it's you are not too young to seek God for your soul. You're not too young. If you're old enough to know that you're a sinner, you're old enough to be saved. Now, what do you have to know to be converted? You have to know something about Jesus Christ and what He accomplished. When He went to that cross, He went to that cross to die for the same sins that you and I have committed as a punishment for our sins. Jesus bore God's anger because of our sins. You need to know that and believe that and you need to be willing to turn away from the evil things in your life and disobeying your parents is one of the most evil things you can commit as a child. You need to be willing to repent and turn away from those kinds of things and put all of your trust in Jesus. Because if you die without having turned from sin to Jesus, you'll die in your sins and face God's anger. And you don't want that. You need a Savior. You need to flee from the wrath which is to come on Judgment Day. So I just want to exhort the kids, begin to seek God. Call on the Lord while He may be found. He may be found now. He won't be able to be found once you're dead. And you it'll be too late then. Now is the time to be saved. Now is the acceptable time to repent and be converted. This is one thing we have to remember always. These three little words, God saves sinners. Your mom and dad can't save you. Your pastor can't save you. Your grandma and grandpa can't save you. And children, you can't save yourself. There's only one person who can save you, and that's God. And when God saves you, there will be a difference in your life. If you think that you're a Christian now, but you continue on disobeying your parents and it doesn't bother you, it doesn't make you uncomfortable, chances are you've never experienced God's saving grace. Because if you are a converted child, you will care about disobeying your parents. It will grieve your heart. Because it grieves the Holy Spirit. He lives within His children. So it's my prayer that today God will begin a, a work in the souls of some of our kids here in our congregation. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do ask for that work of grace. We ask for the work of grace in parents and children alike. Lord, that there would be no child here who would face you on Judgment Day in their sins, but they would have fled to Christ for salvation. Lord, bring about the new birth in our children. We plead for it, Lord. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen.